Dads are awesome because they're our dads and they want what's best for us. Dads are awesome because they're always there for you when you need them most. My dad is fun because he's always willing to play games with me and try new games. I would describe my dad as being a passionate person. He loves sports, he loves his family, and he enjoys these days especially being with his grandkids. It's been my philosophy over the years that families need fun, and we have fun. The most fun thing about my dad is his enjoyment of competition. As a family, we always compete at anything we do. The most mundane thing we've turned into a competition is rock skipping. And for some silly reason, whoever skips the rock the most seems to take a great sense of pride in that. My son and my grandson and I love to be competitive, but in my opinion, it's competitive in a good way. You know, the winner has been known to talk a little trash, but the trash is forgotten and the relationships continue. The thing I appreciate most about my dad is the fact that even though he didn't use the words, I knew he loved me. There was no question. I think that all dads should read the book of James. I love to read James because it says, actions, if they're not there, words don't mean anything. But if words are accompanied by actions, they mean something. And my dad talked, but more, he acted out the fact that he loved me as his son. Growing up as a kid, we were always involved in our local church. Uh, my dad was active in teaching and Sunday school. I see my dad living out his faith today uh, through volunteer work and being generous with his time and resources. And he's really passed that on to me as a dad. That's something important that I teach my kids. I, you know, faith, faith in Jesus doesn't just happen. It takes work. It takes the desire to learn and to grow. Uh, one important thing that we do is we're always praying for others. Whether it be something small or big, we're always trying to be there for them, even if they might not know it. If there's anything I regret in life, one of the things I regret in life is that I never did say thanks, Dad, for being there. Thanks, Dad, for playing with me. Thanks, Dad, for being an example of God's love to the people around us. Dad, you were meaningful to me in so many ways, and I just want to say thanks. Thank you, Dad. I love you, Dad. Welcome to all those that are worshiping online with us, those in the room at our various sites. Glad we're together. Would you join me in giving thanks to Steve, Rob, and Sean for sharing their story with us today? We'll do that, and uh, we're grateful. You can tell this is a family that has fun. They do fun well. So before I get into the message, um, I might as well add one bad dad joke for just a little fun. Men have a hard time saying three things. I'm wrong, I'm sorry, and Worcestershire sauce. 
So we just got to have some fun. I, my kids give me a hard time with the dad joke deal, so I don't do many of them, but we, we get to have a little levity. Also, let's have a little fun and celebrate in our church family uh, a little bit of an update on what's taking place. Westwood gave birth to a new church 10 years ago called Westbrook Church. Kevin Sharp, pastor here at Westwood, we sent him off to start it along with about 100 people. And I just want to update you that last week they moved into their new building on the border of Chaska and Victoria. And I had the opportunity to be there. It was so much fun. It was a blast to be there. It's been a hard, long road as it is when you start anything new. So it was a great celebration, so much so on behalf of the Westwood family, we sent over yo-yo donuts today. And uh, they're celebrating with uh, those donuts and just all the goodness that God is giving to them in their new space. I just share that as an opportunity for you to give a shout out to Westbrook, to Pastor Kevin, and just say, you know, we're praying for you, which we certainly want to do. Well, let me transition from fun to the book of Job on Father's Day, right? Why not? It makes sense because all of life is coming from God. I'm going to wrap up today this series from um, the book of Job called Help Overcoming Tough Times. And we're going to end actually in a high note, and I'm grateful for that because Job at the end of this long, hard suffering actually gets restored. And we'll see that at the very end but not before dealing with some clarifying questions. And questions do that. They clarify what we believe and what we think. One of the most humbling and quite honestly intimidating experiences I've ever gone through in my life was my ordination council. It's an examination council. I was ordained in 1986, but before being ordained, I had to pass this examination council in the presence of people who are well-equipped in ministry, professors, um, pastors, um, other church congregational members. There were about 125 people present at my uh, ordination examination. It was moderated by John Piper. Many of you have probably read John Piper's books, and John Piper was a mentor to me. I was um, in his classes, and also he was my advisor, and I minored in Greek from him. But he was an intimidating presence, to say the least. In fact, in our cohort of Greek class, there were 24 of us who started, and two years later, Later, there were six of us left and I got a B and I'm going to tell you I've never been so happy about a B in my life but it was intimidating to step into his presence and he moderated this examination as I as a young guy started out my ministry here's the ordination process I would present my statement of faith and I would do it one belief at a time and then he would facilitate questions from um, those who were there gathered to ask whatever they wanted on that statement of faith, including cultural life application kinds of questions. So it's hard to prepare for it because you don't know exactly what's going to come your way. They asked me hard biblical theological questions, including one of my Hebrew professors who said, Joel, what is numerology and how does that impact ministry? Well, quite honestly, at that time, I had never even heard of numerology, never studied it in seminary. I had no answer and simply said, I have no idea what you're talking about. I was just 28 years of age. And the reality is I had just finished seminary and I was at the front end of my learning. But here I am all these years later and I would say I'm still on the front end of my learning. It just seems like the more you learn, the more there is to gain and more to learn that's still to follow. It's intimidating to stand before people asking probing questions intended to bring clarity to your beliefs. 
But can you imagine how far more intimidating it is to stand before God who asks probing questions to clarify what you believe? And that's what God does to Job. And in the process of bringing him to restoration, God's going to have some questions from Job near the end of the story. In fact, let me set it up a little bit because we find at the end of the story, Job is accusing God of being unjust, and yes, even incompetent. Hard to believe, but let me give you the backdrop. Remember, Job bore the grief of vanished wealth, of poor health, living with unrelieved misery for months with open sores during that duration in his body. He lived with family despair, seven dead sons and three dead daughters. And he had become repulsive to his wife and loathsome to his brothers, and even children pitied him as he lay on a heap of ashes outside of their town. And at first, when we're learning about Job in the beginning of the story, he handles these calamities with an unwavering faith. Um, and in essence, saying to, to, in the expression of his faith before God that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. It's, it's part of what life is for us. Or he says to his wife, who curses really um, God in this journey and challenges Job to curse God and to actually die. Why live through this suffering that you're in? To which he replies, shall we receive good from the Lord, but not trouble? that both are part of what comes to us in life. And he is trusting God in the midst of both early on in the journey. But his misery drug on and on month after month and after never ending interrogating questions by his friends who argue that God is just with a pretty profound implication being that God rules the world according to justice. So they accuse not God of being unjust, but Job for saying or doing something that must have been profoundly sinful, a terrible sin that would justify this kind of horrific suffering he was going through in his life. And so these friends just over time, month after month, wore him down uh, like a toddler, which according to studies, a toddler will ask between 100 and 300 questions in a day. And many of you are in that place right now. And it can take the most fit mother and father and wear them down with all of those questions. And this is where we find Job. He's just worn down and he's fed up. He's innocent and he knows that he's innocent. In defending himself against the bad things said to him by his friends and being worn down, he said some things that are just untrue about God. And we find Job is wavering a little here in his confidence, and he accuses God of being unjust and incompetent in how he runs the world, asking, why has God denied me justice and made my life bitter? And if we're honest, we kind of cheer Job on in that question. Why, God, are you allowing this to happen? I want to say something here about justice, because the view that they had, these, these friends that were interrogating him, and Job himself, and people at that time, is that when you're dealing with God, the just God that we know him to be, it means that being good brings a prosperity, and sinning brings um, devastation into your life. And that's how they view God running the world. But when we see the book of Job, we come to understand that ultimately it's not about um, suffering, which is what we think about the book of Job being most about. What we're really seeing here is a rare peek through the keyhole of eternity and how God runs the world. Job 
knocks on heaven's door, hoping to gain a legal court hearing so that he could ask God directly, personally, some tough questions about his unjust suffering. In fact, he says these words, let the Almighty answer me. I don't know if you've ever said anything like that to God, but let the Almighty, you're Almighty, so you answer the questions that I have. So instead of appearing in court to accuse God of unjust suffering, something happens. God shows up in the eye of a violent storm and his voice is heard and it's a voice that asks questions. God begins an interrogation of Job. He asks him 77 rhetorical questions. Job could not answer any of the 77 questions. None of the questions contained anything about suffering, which is what Job most wanted to hear. God never even addressed the reason for suffering. These questions um, have an effect. They show Job's ignorance and they reveal God's greatness and tell us how he runs the universe. You find it in chapter 38 through 41. Obviously, we can't go through all of those questions and we can't go through all of those chapters, but I'm gonna give a summation. God says to Job in uh, chapter 38, verse three, brace yourself like a man and I will ask questions. I will, I will question you and you shall answer me. It just makes you a little nervous to even hear God speak that way. It's like a father saying to his son, stand up, I've got some questions for you and I want some answers and I'd like those answers now. And that's what we picture here with Job and God in this moment. Let me bring you into the Hebrew word for man here. It's, it's, the word is gabor and it means a strong man, a mighty man, a, a, a warrior. And instead of Job asking God questions, God was going to do the question asking. So Job was to be alert like a soldier, like a warrior. He is to be honest. He is to be intelligent in his response. He is to be brave as he stands really in a sense of a battle zone of questions with God who's about to um, interrogate him. This was a reversal of Job's words to God when he says, let the Almighty answer me. And now God says, let the Gibbo, the man, uh, answer me. And we find this exchange. And in this exchange, God humbles Job. God questions Job in a number of ways, beginning with the world. It's really a stirring, rapid-fire engagement. And I want to encourage you, if you've not read these chapters in Job, please do so. Um, your heart will be stirred. Your mind will be stretched when you step into um, these questions that God has for Job. And it begins with God focusing on the earth. In verse four of chapter 38, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? He's saying, tell me if you understand, Job. If, if you weren't there, Job. You just weren't there. You don't know how I did it. And then God focuses on the sea in verse eight. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? It, it was I, Job. I set the, the limits of the waters. You weren't there and you don't know how I did these things. And then God focuses on the dawn in verse 12. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? You never did it, Job. You just didn't. You never made the sunrise or the sunset. You don't know how to do it. I've always done it. I'll continue to always do it. 
And then God focuses on the depth and breadth of the sea and the expanse of the land in verses 16 and following. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all of this. Job, you've never seen the bottom of the sea. You've never traversed or made your way all around the world. And you think you know enough to accuse me of being unjust, incompetent, like I don't know what I'm doing? Then God questions Job about the world above. God speaks about the origin of light and dark in verse 19. What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? You don't know where it is, Job, or how it got there, but I do. I made the light. I made the light out of the darkness. Then God goes on to speak about snow and hail and rain and where he stores them and how he uses them. And right now, we're in such a drought in our country, we want him to use it now. We want the storehouses to open up for us. And he's saying, Job, do you know where I keep them? Can you make it rain? Uh, And then God goes even higher with Job. And God speaks about the constellations in verse 34. Can you bind the change the chains of Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellation in their seasons or lead out the bear with its cubs? Friends, let's just pause for a moment. This is what God is saying. Whether you focus on the earth or the sea or the dawn or the dark or the rain, the snow, the hail or the constellations, the upshot is Job is ignorant. That's what he's saying that he doesn't know where they came from. He doesn't know how to make them work. He is utterly surrounded above and below by mysteries, and so are we. Because the scientific advancements, as exciting as they are of the last 200 years, are like sandpails of salt water hauled from the ocean of God's wisdom and dumped into a hole on the beach while a tide is rising. And God is not impressed. It's a call for us to... Uh, be in awe of the unknown mysteries, those things which we yet do not know, not be impressed by a science and the little that we do know. And you'd think that that would be enough, and I'm just giving you a summary. I mean, these are chapters long, and he continues with his questions to Job about the world of animals in verse one. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? I mean, think about it, Job, he's saying. I'm on top of all of these things. Every deer in Minnesota that gives birth, I am there. Every mountain goat in Alberta and the Yukon, when they are born, I am there. I know their months. Think of it, Job. When you, or any of us, see a work of God, even like your suffering, can you see its connection to the 10,000 other realities in the world like I can? If not, Who are you to judge my justice, my competence? And then he goes on with this animal world. Who provides food for the lions and the birds, the creatures of the earth? I do, Job, all over the world. Can you do that? And he goes on to describe monkeys and oxen, and he calls it stupid ostrich. It's actually called stupid um, ostriches in the scriptures who walks away from their young and treat their young cruelly. He's saying, Job, even what you think is foolish are by design, ostriches, um, mosquitoes, horseflies. I govern them by my perfect design. God is saying that there 
are 10 million things about running the universe of which you know so very little, and I know them perfectly. And so it is presumptuous to assume that you can counsel me about how to run um, a more just world. You can't begin to know all that has been taken into account in making decisions about how to run the world for my purpose and for my glory. And God pauses here in the story and he gives Job time to respond. And you can imagine he's shell-shocked. And, and God says, let him who accuses God answer him. And there's pause and there's quiet. And Job's response. Chapter 40, verse 4. I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. See, Job is getting the point. I'm finite. I don't have the knowledge or wisdom to run this world, and I'm utterly ignorant of how it works and why it works the way it works. I have no business telling my maker or the ruler of all how to run the world or even condemning God for the way that he runs it. And do you know what God does? He continues his case against Job with more questions. <laughs> and he's just strong at him, revealing the complexity of the world and how to run it with the constant cry for justice to abase the proud and exalt the humble, the billions and billions and zillions and zillions of scenarios God deals with every hour of every day in our understanding of time and it's incomprehensible to us so the rightness of God's might is not merely that it is God's but also that his purpose are consistent with his excellencies Job's response um, to all of this questioning is submission and the words are brief in the text but they're really compelling to me it's Job submitting to God's sovereignty in verses one and two of chapter 42. Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job in essence says, you see what I and no one else can see. You hear what we cannot hear. You have this mighty right hand orchestrating things that is complex, beyond what we could ever put together. It's a puzzle that only you see and orchestrate. And you do it according to your will and your way. And I submit to this. I don't understand the why. And I've been forthright with you, but I know in light of what you have just revealed to me, I can trust you in it all. And then Job submits by repenting in verse five. You said, listen now, and I will speak. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Even though the conversation turned um, to a rebuke rather than to vindication, it's not what Job expected, there's this personal encounter with God, which was more than enough compensation for his woes. The last feature of his response is to despise himself as utterly unworthy of the Lord's grace. After calling him incompetent to run the world with justice as Job understood it, 
And for Job, there's no more controversy in this moment. There's no more resentment. The pall of silence and alienation is lifted and Job may speak to his God once more in the confidence that God loves him and is always ready to hear his voice. And for the true man of God and woman of God, that is what matters most, to know that I can have a personal encounter with God, to know that he hears me and that we can have this conversation. I think about repentance, and through the years I've tried to have a really simple, clear definition because there's so much confusion. I want to bring it back up to you. It's not turning away from our sin that leads us to Christ. It is turning to Christ that leads us away from sin. That Job turned to God. We have the benefit of the revelation of God revealed to us in Christ Jesus. And so it's not about our strength to turn away from a sin that we commit. In fact, he gives us the power for any turning away from sin, but we're ushered into his presence. We see him for who he is and who we are, and we want to turn away from sin. We want to be in his presence, and we're so glad that he hears our voice as Job expresses here. And there's more to the story. God honors Job God exhorts the friends and tells them to apologize. He just says, that's enough. You were wrong about me, and you were wrong about Job, so apologize. And you can imagine how hard that was after months of interrogating, but they are humbled, and they do. They apologize to Job, and then he tells Job to forgive them and to pray a blessing over them. Now, how inclined are you to want to pray a blessing over to people who oppose you, get in your face, come against you, challenge your decision-making, why you are where you are, and experiencing what you're experiencing? We're just not inclined naturally to bring blessing to people like this. But before Job is restored, God does this. He tells him to bless his friends who have come against him. So that tells me right relationship with each other really matters in the economy of God's grace. And then he restores him, which I'm going to read in just a moment in closure of our study in the book of Job. But before I do so, let me just give you a few Joel takeaways from myself and what I've learned in um, this journey about my suffering and about God. Three things I want to share with you. One, I will run to God and not shut God out. Because I believe God sees me and hears me and has purposes for what happens that I don't always see, but I trust him in it. That God approves of Job wrestling with God with all of his emotion and pain because Job wanted to talk to God himself. And God says, that's the right way to process your life, your grief, your celebrations. Um, bring it to me. Go to God with it in all ways. I love the wor words of Philip Yancey who captures it in, in such a beautiful way when he says, one bold message in the book of Job is that you can say anything to God. Throw at him your grief, your anger, your doubt, your bitterness, your betrayal, your disappointment. He can absorb them all. As often as not, spiritual giants of the Bible are shown contending with God. They prefer to go away limping like Jacob rather than to shut God out. So the inclination is to turn away from God, but rather run toward God. Don't shut God out. Wrestle with God because God loves to engage in the wrestling match and he makes himself known to us in special ways when we go to him. Secondly, 
I will keep my faith tethered to the person of Jesus, not to the blessing he gives. We've covered this several times in these weeks together in the book of Job because the challenge of Satan to God was that Job only believed in God because of the good things God did for him. Remove those good things and no longer would he believe, but in fact that test would prove untrue because Job was tethered to God himself and I see that in my life and I trust in yours to be tethered to the person of Jesus, no matter what happens in my life, not just the blessings that he gives to us, they're abundant, but when they're removed, will I keep trusting him? I will trust. And then third, I will trust God knowing my faith counts. And it's not wasted. That God is using whatever I go through for his glory to increase his reputation. And when I suffer and trust God, people notice and a little of the restoration of the world that God intends Um, is made evident through us. So though we know he will return to make all things new, in this time he uses his own people to be an expression of his glory. And so when we live for him and we trust him in the middle of hardship and suffering, it causes awe by those who witness what we're going through and we give testimony and things are made right through the testimony that we give that there's a purpose. Don't waste your sorrows. God uses them and I believe even uses how we handle our sorrows here for purposes in the eternal realm. That's another message. This is Job and it's a privilege to be Um, students of his life, but students of God through this whole series. We now know that it ends with this beautiful restoration, and I'm not going to put anything on the screen. I just want you to take it in and hear how it concludes. Chapter 42, beginning at verse 10. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and they ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the troubles the Lord had brought upon him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. And the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter... He named Jemima, the second, Keziah, and the third, Keren Hepuch. Now here, nowhere in all of the land uh, were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with the brothers. Only the men would get the inheritance, but here they're included in it in this time and place. And then it concludes, after this, Job lived 140 years He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so he died, old and full of years. That ends our study in Job and the promise that God knows what he's doing when he runs the world and will trust him in it. Throughout the series, we've given you this Job Bible um, reading plan as a bookmark with the hope that you would keep it, that you would read through Job, which is meant for our edification and understanding of so many things. On the back is a lament prayer tool that's available to you. And you'll want to keep this. You may not be in that kind of suffering place right now, but our ability to put words to our suffering is so important to experience the presence of the Lord. And that's what we want for you. So we've prepared that tool. It's available to you. 
keep this as a resource as you deal with your own personal realities of life, the good and the struggles that are in it. So I'm going to invite you to stand, or if you're at home, just be comfortable, open your hands, and receive this prayer blessing as we close our time together. Father God, thank you for this peek through the keyhole of all eternity that would give us a glimpse of who you are and how you run the universe in ways that we don't fully comprehend and never will while we walk the face of the earth, but we have the confidence that you know what you're doing when you allow and even bring hardship into our lives. And it's done with purposes that seek to glorify your name, to increase your reputation. So might we be faithful to you as you are faithful to us, always present, that you will never forsake us or leave us, and we turn to you with that hope. So be honored and glorified, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, before we go, receive this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you shalom peace.